Hello, everyone, and welcome to the How to Chess podcast. We have a guest whose content I have long admired, so I'm excited to get him on the pod. And as luck would have it, he is out with his first chessable course called My First Grunfeld Opening Repertoire. I have been checking it out and enjoying it. He is chess-wise the three-time Irish champion and a four-time Irish Olympian. He's also a YouTuber and a high-level trainer, and I am excited to welcome international master Alex Astani to the show. Welcome, Alex. Uh, hi, Ben. It's uh, nice to be here. Yeah, Thank great you. to chat with you. And Alex, I did e- when I emailed you, I mentioned that the theme, of course, of season three of How to Chess is chess role models. And you came with a, a full list of, um, A, some people you admire, including your, your childhood coach, but B, some of the things that you admire about them, which I found to be quite instructive. So no pressure, but I'm excited to get into it. So, but Alex, let's begin with the overview question of what... What did you think of when I asked you who your chess role models were? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, the, when you think chess role models, the first names that come to mind tend to be names that are very popular. Uh, players, uh, great players of the past, like Bobby Fischer or Mihail Tal, um, and uh, of the somewhat more recent past, Gary Kasparov, and of course, um, another player who I've greatly admired is, is Magnus Carlsen. And, and these are all players who I could... Uh, speak at length about the different things that they added to to my game. I mean, maybe to make it very short, uh, you've got a player like Bobby Fischer, who was a, a, a pioneer in chess and such a universal player. And I think uh, I, I learned a lot about what it is to, to try and aspire to be strong in all areas of the game. I think Bobby Fischer is a great example of that. If you're looking for inspiration in attacking and tactics, uh, one of my favorite books growing up was The Life and Games of uh, Mihail Tal, and that was a big inspiration there. Um, when it comes to ushering in the modern era of opening theory, there's the likes of Gary Kasparov. And, uh, and, and, and as for you know the most universal player in modern times, I think Magnus Carlsen, is, uh, is, uh, his games are, are just incredible. But that is kind of the, the the role models in terms of the more traditional role models that came to mind. Yeah, uh, some great choices there. I'm a big fan of the life and games of uh, Mikhail Tala as well. And what about sort of on a, a more uh, local level, Alex? Yeah, so on a local level, I, um, you know, I grew up in Ireland and uh, Ireland did not have uh, still would not have so much, but it's it's come along in a uh, come along a long way in the last uh, in the last couple of decades. But when I was a kid, um, there wasn't many training opportunities in Ireland, and I did not even live in the capital of Dublin, so there weren't many um, uh, chess players who were seeking to 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 train uh, a lot. And so my training as a kid mostly came in Spain when I would go back. And I had a I had one coach uh, there who really heavily influenced my game because uh, he was my coach from about the age of eleven, and then um, while we only worked formally for a short period of time, we worked informally for uh, about a decade. So he was a, a huge huge influence, and yeah, and he's he's the player. His name he's an international master. His name is uh, Roberto Paramos, uh, his Spanish international master, and. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's the player who I was thinking of when I sort of um, expanded on this idea of what a you know what a role model means to me personally and and what such a player has given me uh, over the years. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many local coaches who might not be household names, even at the IM level, um, and they can play such an instrumental part in one's chess development. So, um, I'm sorry, can you say your coach's name for me again, Alex? Yeah, it's uh, Roberto, like uh, Robert uh, uh, Paramos. Roberto Paramos. Shout out to Roberto. So, what were some of the lessons imparted to you by uh, I am Roberto Paramos, Alex? Yeah, so... um, Okay, so there's a f- uh, there's a few of them um, that kind of that I think have influenced me even like my thinking on chess to this day. And when I've uh, I worked for quite a lot of years as a full time chess coach online, and I found myself rehashing some of these uh, these different bits of advice that that when I traced back, uh, you know, the origin of those those ideas, they many of them came back to to Roberto and um, where to where to begin. Well, first of all. Uh, maybe we can speak about the opening, uh, the opening phase and his advice there. Um, the course that uh, I just recently released, uh, my first Grunfeld um, repertoire on Chessable, uh, this this actually was one of the reasons I wanted to do this was uh, to bring me back to my very first uh, black repertoire where uh, my coach, Roberto, he actually encouraged me he pretty much told me, look, this is what you're going to be playing. <laughs> against one E4, you're going to play the Sicilian Nidorf. And against one D4, you're going to play the Grunfeld. And, uh, you know, in, at that point in time, I really didn't know too much about uh, the game of chess. I was maybe, you know, a promising promising junior, but I was maybe 1,600 in strength or, or, or so, uh, 1,500, 1,600 in strength. And he gave me this repertoire and what he kind of conveyed to me over the years and what what I, I understood more and more is that the repertoire had at least as much to do with the middle game and the end game and improving your chess overall, your chess development, as it did with actually getting a good position out of the opening. He wasn't so interested. I mean, I kept getting crushed, right, in the Nidorf and the Grunfeld, as you can imagine. But he, he didn't care so much about uh, you know, how easy is it to to memorize the repertoire because Grunfeld and Neidorf are hard. What he cared the most about is let's get the kind of positions that will excite a player, uh, you know, who's a junior player and um, that will sort of create a fire on board and not just to keep them interested in, in the kind of games that they're going to be getting uh, that are straight away very, very exciting tactically, uh, but also to provide the best canvas uh, to develop your skills, to hone your skills, right? So he was very conscious about designing an opening repertoire in a way that enables you to really grow as a player. And what he felt, and I still agree with this, I don't know um, your own uh, take on it or the experience of other um, coaches that you may have interviewed, but I really believe that uh, it's if you're in the junior developing stages, um, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult uh, learner, I really believe it's a, very important to try to max out in terms of your knowledge of tactics, your ability of ta- within tactics, your knowledge of patterns, um, you know, all the kind of chess fundamentals. Max out on them, max out your skills before later on focusing a bit more on positional stuff or a little bit more on theory. I mean, those things should come and will come for for most players but i think that um especially important for kids to just get really really good at tactics at calculating 
um, at pattern recognition, all of these skills that are going to translate across all the parts of, of chess. And so I think that was one of the things that I really thank him for to make the link clear between the opening choices that you make and the impact that it's going to have on your overall development. And um, maybe in that respect, I'll refer back to the Grunfeld that one of the things that I, I really like about the Grunfeld is it's an opening that because of its forcing nature can lead to quite typical end games. And uh, so very often I found myself from an early age, you know, not only getting end games, but getting end games that were never quite the same, but quite similar. And I think that this provides like a real life training environment for thematic, like a kind of a thematic exercise, but specific to the end game, right? You, you play these thematic end games, you play sometimes, uh, it's the structure that will, that will lead to the end game, uh, being that will generate this kind of thematic end game. And, um, and he was, yeah, he was once again, somebody who, uh, showed me the value of choosing an opening, not just to work, you know, on your tactics or your calculation, but can also be the perfect battleground to work on things like, uh, your end game play. Wow. There's, there's a lot, a lot of insights there, Alex. Now, let's start with what you said about tactics, about sort of laying the groundwork with tactics. Your coach gave you the MVL repertoire of uh, the Grunfeld and the Nidorf. Now, I agree with what you say about kids starting out tactically, but I'm curious, Alex, did you feel like you were already a tactical player? Like, did he select that for you based on your style? Or was it just this is how everyone or at least every kid should start out? Um, he actually gave this to, it, it was a pretty small group of, uh, of players, but he gave that, uh, repertoire almost as it was to, to most of the, the, like the core group of kids that he was working with. I should clarify, he was working with, uh, the more, um, let's say ambitious kids that were dedicating a lot of hours to chess per week. Uh, so he wasn't giving this repertoire to somebody who maybe was a beginner and, had uh you know enough time to spend a couple of hours a week on chess uh, he was giving this to people who were spending at least you know 10 12 hours a week on chess um but there wasn't too much choice he gave me this and he gave that to everybody else I, the only the only choice that i can uh remember is that he also gave the possibility of playing the king's indian instead mm -hmm. so if you wanted to go if you didn't like the grunfeld you could go king's indian of course you could also do both right um, but that was kind of the only choice. And then everybody else, I never spoke about the white side. Everybody else was started off on one E4. And, um, and that's actually, yeah, that was my, that, uh, nowadays I've been for about 12 years, a one D4 player. But back then, uh, the first 10 years or so of my chess career were all one E4. And it, it again, harkens back to this idea that he just wanted to get a lot of opportunity for, you know, tactics and sharp play. And to address your question as to, you know, was I a tactical player uh, there or was I more of a positional player? I've always struggled to identify myself as having a particular style because I, I tend to enjoy the different stages of the game. And I, I would say I'm similarly, similarly competent in tactics uh, than I am in positional chess. I would say pretty, pretty, uh, pretty balanced in that respect. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. He didn't, you know, he didn't, let's say, uh, decide that I was a very tactical player. Um, and that's why he created the repertoire. But I will say one thing that after creating this, this repertoire, this highly sharp repertoire, after a while, I was 
viewed by other players as very, very tactically uh, sharp player. And as I got a bit older and I started to play things like the Karo Khan um, and I switched to 1D4, players started to see me more as somebody who was more positional in, in nature. And sometimes it's hard to know, you know, what comes first between the chicken and the egg, because um, I think that if you give a kid a lot of, or an early, or some anybody who's new to the game, and you just force them to swim in a particular kind of waters, at some point, their, their level, their skill in navigating that is going to just go up and they're going to start to have success. And I think sometimes success breeds success. You start to get a few wins in certain kinds of positions and you start to feel these are the positions I'm good at. Then you start to seek them out more and it just keeps on going. I don't know if that, if that's something that resonates with you and, and, and your own chess, but that that's always been my impression. It's really hard to know what came first. Yeah, for sure. And and for the record, Alex, I just to expand on what you were saying earlier, I do think that for even for adults, since obviously we're going to have a primarily adult audience here, I do think it's good to start with these open positions. I think, you know, you mentioned you might have been 1600 level. I think by then maybe it's okay to start to if you feel like you have a preference for quieter positions. But I do think that since adults often struggle with sort of the dynamics of the game, more than the fundamentals, I do think that a repertoire like you describe, and of course those aren't the only potential openings, but I do think that makes a lot of sense as even a grounding. Um, and I was impressed with what it, what I've seen in your Grunfeld course in terms of, as you mentioned, the, the variety of positions maybe is part of why um, you do feel like you were a bit of a universal player. But Alex, I know that you highlighted a few things that you learned from your coach. And another one that I think listeners would definitely be interested in hearing about is you mentioned that he sort of um, prodded you to do visualization and blindfold from uh, early in your chess development. Could we hear a bit more about that, Alex? Yeah, sure. So one of the common questions that I've gotten as a, as a coach is how can you, how can I develop my visualization skills. And I think it makes sense, right? There's so many players who are exposed to, you know, as students of the game who are exposed to uh, all sorts of content where you see these, these chess grandmasters, uh, you know, some of the best in the world, um, performing supernatural feats of, of, of visualization. Um, and, uh, and it's very easy to and I think it's true that there, but it's very, what I was going to say is it's very easy to uh, hone in on that and think, you know, this is something that I, I absolutely need to get very, very good at in order to be able to compete uh, with experienced chess players. And then, you know, they turn to, to find some material on that. And it's, it's maybe a little bit difficult to access that material. And I think that one of the reasons why that is, is because most players who I know who are, um, you know, find it comfortable to visualize. Uh, I think that they just, that was like almost an incidental skill. They didn't actively set out, I'm going to do visualization exercises, but rather they just trained in a way that organically developed their visualization over time. And this is something that um, my coach was basically did without me even knowing. So what he did uh, was a few different things like, and, and it, it was many years later that I actually realized this guy was really helping my visualization. One thing that he would love to do is analyze games with me. Uh, for instance, I would play these tournaments one game a day and in the evening, like a FIDE rated tournament. And in the, in the evening, the ritual was I would call him and we'd analyze the game. But he would, 
analyze it blindfold and give suggestions. He was much, much better at uh, blindfold than I was. But since I had more familiarity with the game, I was able to keep up, right? Because it was the wow. game I had played. So we just wound up sometimes talking for over an hour on the phone, just discussing the game. Like, And he would throw in some suggestions. I would play the whole game to the end game. And I think uh, only many years later did he disclose to me that he was also getting something out of this, right? He was using it as a technique to keep his own visualization skills sharp. Um, but that's one thing that he introduced me to and he introduced the whole group to. So we were all in the habit. And when I say the group, it was like me and three or four other uh, players who were looking, who were quite young and looking for titles, as well as one older player who was already an international master. And this group, uh, we would always just be discussing games between us uh, that we had played. So for instance, uh, we would travel to these chess tournaments and uh, they were all over the northwestern part of Spain called Galicia, but each one would be in one different city. So we would always have typically like an hour, between an hour and two to the game and back to travel. And that time was mostly spent just uh, discussing either our opening preparation blindfold whether it was on a train, on a boat, on a bus, whatever it was, we would be discussing um, our intentions for the game ahead, our opening preparation. And I, you know, you might run me through your ideas, and I would have to keep those um, those ideas in mind and maybe give you some feedback. Then I'd talk about my intentions, and 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 like this, we were doing visualization training. And then on the way back, we would be doing the same thing. Uh, with uh, the games that had just been played. So somebody would be talking and uh, we would all be sort of, um, you know, if you had won, we would be uh, poke, trying to poke holes and try and find ways that, hey, you know, we, here's a little improvement uh, that could be made. And, um, and, uh, and of course, the same if, if, if somebody had lost. So we were doing that and racking up a huge amount of hours uh, just training blindfold. Um, Another thing that he would do is ch sort of chastise all of us if we ever dared to move the pieces themselves. Huh. So he would just put the, the position on the board and he made it an absolutely unbreakable habit. You do not move the pieces. Moving the pieces is, is uh, you know, he would say like, uh, okay, you can move the pieces as much as your opponent will let you move the pieces, right? During <laughs> a game. I mean, in right. a conditions, you can do the exact same thing here. Um, so we never moved the pieces. And that's something that, again, forced us to, to analyze. And that segues into uh, another exercise that he would do that wasn't strictly for blindfold, but that was very helpful. Uh, he would uh, always try to uh, find the beauty in chess and kind of use that to spark our interest. So sometimes maybe it's very easy. It happens to me anyway. Um, it can be very easy to, to get lost in uh, your in your goal of trying to make uh, a student do constructive work that you can kind of forget about the beauty of chess and like trying to actually um, sort of inspire people and connect them to the game and to the beauty of the game. So what he would do very often is he would find some position that had inspired him, that had struck him uh, as a, a composition or, you know, some puzzle, uh, anything that was challenging, but also beautiful. And he would just go into his little academy, that's where we all met. And sometimes he just throw the position up on the board and uh, give us, you know, and say, okay, you guys have 15 minutes, try and figure this one out. And then that would be that. And 15 minutes later, he'd come back. And then we'd all have to speak about what we saw in the position. So he'd be like, okay, you, Alex, now 
tell me what have you seen what have you analyzed before anything could be moved so the 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 focus was always on like being able to you know navigate the world of the chessboard rather than where the focus can easily go which is you know did i get it right he he it was almost like an afterthought for him whether you got it right or not it was it was about um for him it was mostly about just trying to uh encourage that you know that calculation and that visualization so those were um some of the things that come to mind in addition of course just uh, playing playing uh blitz games and training games uh blindfold that's something that i did both with my coach but also he would get students to pair up against each other blindfold um and maybe i have one more comment on on visualization uh, well sure first one quick question because the, first of all it sounds like an amazing teacher r- really impressive uh, through and through when he would leave you these puzzles um and then leave the room for 15 minutes were you guys discussing the position or were you each looking at it on your own in together in the room um generally discussing okay yeah, yeah, because I do think that yeah, that especially and now it's in a sense it's even more um, more rare, but probably more valuable because we can all just turn the engine on. But to to sort of flesh out ideas like that in a group setting is super valuable. But what were you going to add about visualization, Alex? Yeah, and sorry, just to maybe specify on that. So generally, it was discussing, but usually it would be like we would each try to formulate our own opinion. And then, like, take a few minutes to acquaint ourselves with the position. Then we could discuss it uh, just to poke holes in each other's uh, okay. argument. And later on, you know, he might come. But it 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 would depend a lot on the difficulty of the position as well. There were some where he where it was clear, and he would encourage us. You know, this is going to take. This is such a difficult one that it's probably going to take a group effort. So then there was more discussion. Whereas then there, whereas there would be other situations where he would kind of channel our competitiveness and we would all be very quiet until he would arrive uh where the focus there was you know who who actually uh who actually won the competition so to speak who has the better answer and then we weren't sharing so sometimes we play as individuals and other times as a team okay Uh, uh, yeah no the other point i was going to make about visualization is that when i've been asked by students over the years you know how do you uh, how do you how did you improve your visualization? And I give the kind of um, stories that I just uh, shared with you here. One of the issues or one of the common responses is that uh, many students feel that in order to to train your visualization skills in the way I've outlined, you need a certain base level, right? So mm-hmm. you cannot do this if you're rated thirteen hundred or fourteen hundred um, to you know have an hour long conversation analyzing analyzing a game. And that's certainly true, but I think that there's a few things that you can do uh, to improve your visualization uh, at, at more or less at all levels. Um, obviously, technology has facilitated this uh, nowadays. I mean, there are some websites, uh, you know, such as, for example, on on Leeches. Uh, you can you can I don't know if other websites have this, uh, but you can actually you have like a blindfold. Uh, options so you can just literally turn off all your pieces yeah uh, and uh, you can go ahead and 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 just play and yeah and chess.com does as well sorry chess.com has it as well chess. yeah it's amazing it has it. Uh, yeah. yeah and and this is and so some students what i encourage them to do is to actually use the blindfold feature but again it goes back to this question you know well 
how can I play the full blindfold game? It's, it's beyond, uh, beyond my abilities. So there's two things that you can do to modify it. One thing that you can do actually is just have it on a, on a tab, have very easy access to like switch on and off the blindfold mode. And so what you can do is you can just turn blindfold mode on, play a bunch of moves, and then um, when the, the position has become too blurry, you just turn blindfold off. Uh-huh. And you can actually take a look, or you can refresh, you can take a look at the board, and then once the board has been refreshed in your mind, any doubts are gone, then you can turn blindfold back on. So you can just toggle on and off. That's one option. Another option, if, uh, if that's uh, too complicated, is to train the end game portion blindfold. So play your games. Let's say you're playing, I don't know, ideally to do this, you want to play something with increment. Uh, but let's say you're playing like 10 plus 5 increment. And uh, so you're playing this time control and you finally get to a pretty simplified position, some kind of an end game, some king and pawn end game or rook and pawn end game. Those positions are easier to hold in your mind. And again, each player would have to judge it. Maybe if your rating is uh, 1800, maybe you can um, feel comfortable. The average person at 1800 might feel comfortable in... Uh, you know, early end games, let's say. Whereas if you're uh, much newer to the game, maybe you're only comfortable when you're down to just, you know, maybe even something as simple as king and pawn versus king, and you want to mm-hmm. convert that position blindfold. Um, I did it the kind of the the old-fashioned way. And so in terms of old-fashioned stuff, I would just say um, another way in which you can do it that I think is a little bit helpful is you can take, um, you can take a... a this is a, a tool that uh, my coach also would do. You just take the chessboard and uh, you take any particular position and you constantly train to be able to reconstruct that position. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that he would do is, let's say, he would take a, a position on a diagram in a book and the normal uh, student experience would be you take the book and you have it right next to, let's say, a physical chessboard. And you're looking at the at the board, and then you're transferring piece by piece uh, onto the chessboard. Uh, he would actually encourage us to look at the diagram itself and try to commit it to memory, and then reconstruct it from memory on the chessboard. And it's something I've found that uh, strong strong players that I've spoken to in chess they seem to have a lot of fluency with being able to just take any particular position and just look at it briefly and then reconstruct it. And so he would force me and force his students to do this work. And I think that's also helpful because if you think about what uh, goes into being good at visualizing, a big thing is actually just being able to anchor, uh, like having a good memory of what the particular position is on your mind and, and, uh, you know, a good attention to detail of everything. So that's another characteristic or not, not another characteristic, but rather another training tool. Wow. So much good stuff there. Yeah. And obviously building your working memory, like you described, that's a skill that even outside of chess, that's that's got to be a, a good skill to have. One thing I wanted to add, Alex, on what you were saying about the sort of visualization capabilities of Chessable is they do have a series of courses that I've recommended before called Visualize um, that are kind of as you describe where... Uh, I mean, they don't do, they don't have necessarily all of the capabilities you describe, at least not yet, but uh, they do give puzzles a certain number of moves into the future. So they show you like a given position and then say, then these three moves happen and then find the tactic in, in the position that happened after those three moves. And I know that um, 
when I interviewed uh, Grandmaster Ramesh for Perpetual Chess, he mentioned that obviously he's training some of the best young players in the world. So they do develop a facility with blindfold uh, chess, but he said he, even for adults, the idea that you describe of having sort of like stepping stone positions where you look back at a given position and then try to go forward from there, he said that's a reasonable substitute because really the skill that you're trying to train at the end of the day is not to play a whole game blindfold, but to be able to see ahead from the position in front of you, um, especially at the board. Um, so lot, lots of amazing insights. It sounds like you had quite a coach as a kid, Alex. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. I mean, th- thanks. It was. Uh, I'll <laughs> I'll be sure to to let him know. Uh, he's um, yeah, he's 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 a very experienced coach. He's worked with a lot of kids over the years, and um, I, I, yeah, I I I'm really glad. Like, I'm really lucky to have sort of stumbled into him because, uh, just we happen to live very nearby. And n- importantly, not only did he become a coach, but I never really thought of him as a coach. I thought of him more so right. as as the you know a friend of mine who was 20 years my senior and and uh, was very passionate about chess but you know that was kind of the mindset and i think that's something we haven't spoken about but one thing that he um you know i thank him maybe above everything else chess wise is that he was always so focused on making chess fun you know yeah um i know that for example uh when i was reading some gary kasparov books when i was much younger I came I came away with this idea that you know Kasparov and maybe Fisher as well they were their own harshest critics and they were always seeking perfection and I think that that's something that's quite a stereotypical description of uh, very high level chess players that they're seeking to you know always always try and figure out where they could improve um, but maybe leaning a bit too heavily towards this kind of self critical side of things and I remember when I became a coach. Uh, in my very first uh, years, I tried to kind of bring this Kasparov-like attitude to the, you know, to schools in Ireland. And what I found very quickly was, you know, kids were basically letting me know either directly or indirectly, this is, this ain't fun, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do this, right? You're giving me right. some hard puzzle. I, I nearly find, I find a pretty good solution, but it's not the best. And you're, you know, the focus is always on that. And, uh, and, you know, that actually made me kind of reassess and try to find a, find something more balanced. And it brought me to thinking back, uh, on, on, uh, my coach and my experiences with him and how he always made it fun. You know, it's things that, like I already mentioned, uh, things such as, you know, finding a beautiful position and then he would, uh, he would have that there, but there's other stuff as well. Um, for instance, one thing that he would love to do is, uh, he always got us to work independently. He was very interested in us uh, not just learning from books and for, or from courses or anything like that, because as great as they can be, I don't believe that it's the, the be-all and end-all, right? Like you also need to put your own spin on things. You need to um, take a look at the openings that you play and try to maybe find an improvement over whatever book you're using. Nobody is... Uh, going to give you the definitive guide on anything. And so you need to do that work yourself to develop um, develop your own understanding of chess, your own style. And in this respect, uh, he would always encourage us to work on our own files. So he might give us the framework, like the Grunfeld or the Nidorf, might give us some files. And then he'd say, now it's 
up to you to improve on this, find ideas. And whenever we would find ideas, find a novelty, he would always say, you know, find an idea over the latest games that have been played, the highest level games. Can you improve upon their play? And we as kids, of course, would love that challenge where it's like, oh, we're improving, uh, you know, on the, the play of Tapalov or the play of Kasparov or something like that. Of course, you know, unlike Tapalov or Kasparov, you know, we could have the assistance of these computers, right? Like we were and messing around and move the position while analyzing in chess space. But, um, you know, the point is that we would walk, walk in there, you know, after the weekend and it's be like, Hey, you know, I found these like two or three novelties and you know, that Grunfeld line. And because many of the, many of us had a similar repertoire, uh, we could speak about that, not just to the coach, but to ourselves. But I remember, you know, I'd say to, to my coach, Hey, you know, you know, in this Nidorf Bishop G5 line, I actually found this idea and it looks pretty good. And then what he'd do is he'd challenge it and he'd be like, well, what if, what if, you know, this happens? What if knight c3? What do you do there? And again, suddenly we find ourselves in a visualization exercise, right? Mm -hmm. We're just training this. But the, the reason I got onto all of this is um, to try to emphasize the point that one thing he was great at is making the process of learning chess fun mm -hmm. um, and creating a kind of a team environment. And I think, um, yeah, he, he did this fantastically for all ages, but I think it's something that is a challenge for maybe adult learners who represent the majority of this, um, the listenership that uh, adult learners sometimes, in my experience, you know, outside of the contact that they would have with me as a coach, they had no contact with right. others. And I think that that, it's very important to have some kind of, um, some kind of a community. In this respect, I think, that's one of the great things Chessable offers that people are, are now feeling a part of a community within Chessable. Uh, before, um, before that existed, I think there were a lot more people who were just, you know, on their own sort of lone warriors here, overwhelmed by, um, the immensity of the game of chess, you know? Yeah, well said. And the the value of both enthusiasm, like uh, portraying one's passion for chess and sort of passing that along, and the uh, community is something that's been sort of a recurring theme as I've done these uh, interviews as about role models. And uh, just to summarize, I mean, the, the amount of tips about ways to work on visualization, I think we're also... Um, uh, quite compelling. I think some people may want to listen to this more than once. And of course, the importance of playing dynamic openings, uh, whether it's early in one develop, one's development or until they reach a certain sort of rating threshold, I think is um, is valuable. And Alex, that brings us to the last topic, which is your your chessable course, my my first Grunfeld course. So how do I have, obviously you describe yourself as someone who's been playing the Grunfeld uh, since you were, um, since you're developing years. So was that the impetus for creating this course? Uh, no, actually the, the impetus were, uh, well, there was a couple of things. Um, I actually switched away from the Grunfeld and onto, uh, the Slav and the Nimzo Indian, um, a number of years ago. And one of the reasons was because I've been playing the Grunfeld for many, many years, but another reason was because, um, I had sort of transitioned you know, from E4, from playing the Nidorf, I transitioned to the Karokan. From playing 1E4, I transitioned to 1D4. And as I was exploring a little bit more strategic positional stuff, um, the Grunfeld started to feel a little bit too sharp for what I was I was doing at the time. And I never got back into the Grunfeld. Uh, so for me, this course was partly 
from a from a selfish point of view, it had to do with reconnecting with uh, the first opening that I that I ever really uh, had or you know fell in love with, right? Alongside the the Nidorf, I learned them both at the same time, and um, and I think I I've always loved the Grunfeld. Um, I, I love the Nidorf too, but I think the Grunfeld somehow. I loved it a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. So it was an opportunity to reconnect with the opening, which I learned, uh, you know, in what was the year, the early 2000s, right? So the landscape of the Grunfeld was very different. So to be able to take a few months uh, away and focus on what is what is the landscape like today was was um, was one of the reasons. Uh, that was kind of the, the selfish reason. The reason, though, that I made it. Uh, and that I thought maybe it might be of interest to um, to to prospective students is that I had looked at um, you know what was the gold standard Grunfeld course on on chessable and one that I myself have worked uh, through large parts of and that is uh, Peter Svidler's uh, lifetime repertoire series and it was sort of um, when I, I I realized man this is a, just an incredible work and it gave me a lot of ideas that I could apply to my own own games, but then I kind of uh, started to feel like this is maybe a little bit uh, overwhelming <laughs> for right. me and for my for my uh, for my time constraints at the moment, and 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 so that kind of planted the idea that maybe I could make a course that is not designed to to replace that, but rather to um, focus a little bit less on you know extracting like the maximum out of each position that you can get and more on creating a repertoire that's a little bit more compact, a bit more accessible. So um, a few of the differences, let's say, between this one, and my one and Spiddler's is that, for instance, uh, in in Spiddler's course, I think it's like uh, off the top of my head now, but I think it's about uh, 36 hours of video content um, with around 1000 trainable variations. Um, whereas in in my first Grunfeld course, it's uh, thirty hours of video content, but with only four hundred trainable variations. Okay. So you have like almost as much video content, um, whereas you have like forty percent the trainable variations. And in addition, the the variations that I've chosen, they're uh, oftentimes. Uh, you know, not shying away from getting like, let's say, a very similar pawn structure, for instance. Uh, you know, I offer the queenless middle game and I discussed that in one chapter. And then if there's an opportunity to go back into a very similar structure, a very similar simplified middle game, then we'll chase after that opportunity because the goal is not to get the maximum uh, advantage out of the opening wherever possible or choose the most ambitious lines, which I think is, is, a, is more of a goal in Peter Spiddler's course. In this one, it's more about let's get good positions when our opponents do something clearly wrong. But if our opponents are following the theory, we're happy with um, prioritizing compactness of the repertoire, simplicity of the lines of understanding what are the ideas from Black. We'll prioritize that over um, you know, finding, let's say, playing the move that maybe the engine considers to be um, the, most, the most promising or the most imbalanced uh, option. So it's it, that it that's sort of what in what inspired the course that I felt the Grunfeld is such a uh, such an amazing um, an amazing opening, but it's a very very challenging opening to kind of dive into without without getting intimidated. So the hope with this course is 
that people who are newer to the Grunfeld or have played it for a while, but they're looking to, to add some more stuff to their knowledge base can find this course challenging, um, but, but a little bit more accessible. And then later on in your, in your career, if you want to add more stuff or fight for the win, uh, from move one, then I, you know, you can always uh, add to this uh, other courses, um, on the Grunfeld as, you know, as, as advanced as, uh, Peter Spiddler's uh, one, which is today, as of today, and likely to remain for a long time, the, you know, the gold standard on, on, uh, chessable for those who may not know, Spiddler is, um, widely regarded as one of the most, um, one of the most uh, r respected and influential Grunfeld chess players uh, in modern times, or perhaps of all time. Um, so that, yeah, that was kind of the idea. Maybe there's one more thing that I'll say, which uh, influenced the philosophy of, uh, influenced the course. And, and that is that I've always kind of had a, a belief that when it comes to learning openings that are sharp from the black side, the best way to learn them is to do it in phases. The first mm -hmm. thing is, don't get a lost position <laughs> like, <don't, laughs> right. like, and keep it compact, right? So if you can transpose, let, like one mistake that I see a lot of players doing, right, is, and I had a conversation I remember um, with a 1600 rated uh, student of mine and he had the possibility to like play a, play a move that would just transpose to the repertoire, but the engine, you know, maybe this was Stockfish 14, or some neural net uh, engine and the engine is saying saying to to him you know well actually you can play this other move and it's like 0 0.2 better let's say um but that would involve you know attacking on an extra hour of theory right and navigating the transpositions and i've i've always felt that beyond the advanced chess level you should skip that like it's much more uh, much better ROI, like a much better return on investment. If you build a compact repertoire, focus on not losing against white's best uh, systems, because what is going to happen is your opponents are, you know, by and large going to quickly deviate from playing from best play. I mean, if you're at the non-professional level, that's going to happen. And that's where your chances are going to come. It's mm -hmm. not you know, the majority of your victories are going to come from the low-hanging fruit of your opponents not really knowing what they're doing. And so it, it's not, I think, such a good thing to get bogged down in this, like, advanced, complex theory um, of, you know, uh, you know, building out the most ambitious, uncompromising repertoire against and trying to do this against all of White's best systems in a hyper-sharp opening that has a lot of developed theory over time. If you try... To set that as your goal, it's going to be very hard for you to become a, a, a Grunfeld player or become a Nidorf player. Maybe it can be done, but I, I've always seen it as more of a two-step process. The first thing is you avoid losing as black and you keep your repertoire relatively compact. Um, and then later on, it's going to be once you have that baseline established, then it's going to be a lot easier to absorb ideas from uh, other sources or to generate ideas yourself so hopefully that is a helpful clarification okay yeah it, it sounds great yeah and i do think that that's helpful and it sounds like i mean i know that there's an audience for what you're doing just because in, in with all the podcasts i do i've heard a lot of people mention obviously Svidler's a legend and uh his course has a place um a very important place in the sort of uh um 
chess ecosystem, but um, yeah, not everyone needs to learn from a 2700 and it can be overwhelming at times. And uh, another thing I would add, Alex, is you probably already uh, aware of this, but a, a lot of adult players are looking for open systems against uh, D4 openings. And the, the Grunfeld, of course, is has a great reputation on the top level, but because of the, the challenges you mentioned, because it can be so challenging, I think a lot of people get um, get turned away. So I think uh, having something a bit uh, more accessible is uh, makes a lot of sense. And uh, and there's a short and sweet version available as well, right, Alex? Yeah, that's correct. There's a 40 minute or so short and sweet that you can check out um, completely for free. Excellent. Um, and, and what's the latest with your YouTube content, Alex, if, if people want to, um, keep up with you beyond chessable, is there anything they should check for right now? Uh, no, uh, to be honest right now, I, I've been quite inactive because I'm hoping to, um, to channel most of my energy into, uh, into making other chessable courses rather than, um, rather than YouTube. So I haven't released anything, but you can find me on YouTube under my name, Alex Sustani. And uh, there you can find some older videos uh, that are maybe a little bit more um, general in nature, but hopefully can be helpful. Some openings material um, and uh, videos such as what is the, the best defense against 1e4 and stuff like that. But I, I have to admit, I, uh, it's, it's relatively dormant in terms of uploads. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've been plenty busy, Alex, and uh, you shared so many insights in this interview. So I uh, just wanted to thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure.